Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Sarah. And uh, let me echo the welcome from uh, Foxy before. Uh, we know that uh, God is in the business of gathering people, and uh, that's not possible for us physically at the moment, but uh, technology is amazing. And so I'm, I'm incredibly thankful to everyone who has joined us online this morning and who keeps doing that in various ways every week. Uh, but we know this is a season that calls for great perseverance, and uh, lots of us feel like we are constantly being pulled in all sorts of different directions at the moment. And uh, if you feel like you're finding things tough, I really want to encourage you, please reach out to someone from our church family. Uh, be in touch with someone on the ministry team. We want to support you and care for you in any way that we can. Uh, we would love to pray with you and for you. And we want to help you keep looking to Christ. And so as Sarah said, it's wonderful this term, our whole church family is all together in John's Gospel. And this morning we're finishing off John chapter 1, which captures for us a really unique moment and a really incredibly significant, fast-paced moment in human history. At the beginning of our passage, there are no followers of Jesus yet anywhere in the world. And no one has yet ever given public testimony to who Jesus is. But by the end of the passage... There have been three people who have testified publicly about Jesus and we have a whole stand full of people who have begun to follow Jesus uh, from our kids' talk just now. And there's been no less than nine different titles to help us understand who Jesus is. And so whether we're still just considering Christ and we're trying to understand the Christian message for the first time or we ourselves have been following Christ for years and we're still looking to grow in that, this passage is for us. Uh, just in terms of how it all holds together, um, our Bible reading brought this out uh, wonderfully earlier on, but the events that are described here do take place over a series of days. And so the, the action begins in verse 19, and then at various points along the way, at verse 35, and again at verse 43, uh, and then I've missed one somewhere, oh, verse 29, a little bit before, we've, the next day, the next day, the next day. Um, but just for the sake of simplicity this morning, I've got two major headings. First of all, the testimony of John the Baptist. And then after that, the discovery of the first disciples. And we'll, we'll finish up with a couple of implications. So first of all, the testimony of John the Baptist. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, we heard the way that John, our author, introduced us to John the Baptist. He said about John in chapter 1, verse 8, he himself was not the light... He came only as a witness to the light. And I think this verse mirrors almost exactly the shape of John's testimony about Jesus. So the first thing he makes clear is that he himself was not the light. Um, uh, what happens at the start of the passage, verse 19, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they send out a delegation to investigate and to find out who John was. And historically speaking, this makes complete sense. We know from the other Gospels that John the Baptist's ministry had a huge impact. There were people coming to him from kind of all over the countryside. And so, of course, the Jewish leaders wanted to find out what was happening. But John's first three answers to them are all in the negative. So in verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Verse 21, then who are you? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Now the word Messiah there in verse 20, it's really the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word Christ. Um, if we wanted to 
capture what they both mean in English, we might say a saviour king, as we've already heard. I mean, there is definitely the idea of rule and authority. The Messiah would be a king. But there's also the idea of of rescue and deliverance. And so the Messiah would be a saviour as well. And uh, the Old Testament had set up an expectation that God would one day send to his people a Messiah, a saviour king, a Christ. And there were other people as well, other figures that God had promised to send in the future. So the new Elijah that was promised and spoken about by the prophet Malachi, the new prophet that was spoken about by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. And yet John insists that he is none of these great figures. He is simply a voice, verse 23, and a voice at that with just one thing to say, which is to point people to Jesus and to get them ready to meet the Lord, to get them ready to meet the Messiah, the Christ, the Saviour King that God was sending. And so he himself, John the Baptist, he himself was not the light. That's the first thing he wants to make clear, that he did come only as a witness to the light, and that's what he starts to do next. And so verse 24, the Pharisees, who are part of this delegation from Jerusalem, they ask John why he baptises, since he's neither the Messiah, nor the prophet, nor Elijah. I mean, there has to be some kind of justification for what he is doing. But immediately, John turns the the spotlight away from himself and onto Christ. Uh, After all, what he does is simply baptise people with water. But verse 26, he says... Among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, with everyone in lockdown, I, uh, I wonder how jobs get divvied up at your place at the moment. In our house, uh, we've got a big chart up on the wall. And uh, every day, you could kind of go up to that chart and uh, you could find your name next to a different job that needs to be done. And uh, this system is working pretty well, although it goes without saying that there are some jobs that are better than others, and there are some jobs that really no one likes doing. Um, In our house, for example, washing up after dinner is generally towards the bottom of people's lists. Um, But there is one job that's even lower again, uh, because you see, everyone is generally happy to play with the dogs, and everyone generally likes to walk with the dogs But no one really enjoys cleaning up after the dogs when they've gone outside to do their business. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, in the ancient world, untying the straps of someone else's sandals, this was absolutely kind of the lowest of the low of the jobs that you could do. Uh, It was really the kind of job that only a slave would do. In fact, some of the Jewish rabbis, they developed a saying which we know about, and uh, they said this, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. And so to untie the straps of someone else's sandals, that was really the, the really lowest of the low. That was, that was a job thought only fit for a slave. And yet what John the Baptist here says is that such is the surpassing greatness of Christ compared to him that he is not even worthy to fulfill this task for the Lord. He's not even worthy to get down and untie the straps of his sandals. That's how great Christ is. 
And yet still John is not done testifying because verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Sarah said, it's an amazing thing to say. Uh, Such a significant sentence here. Notice three things very briefly that we can say from this sentence about Jesus. First, it's really clear that the problem Jesus came to deal with is the problem of our sin. Our deep-seated, wholehearted turning away from God so that we do not naturally love him or serve him or honour him or obey him even though we have been made by him to do all of those things. And we push out for independence from God. And there are so many ways in which our sin shows itself horizontally in, in our relationships with each other, our strained and sometimes even broken relationships with each other and the kind of natural selfishness that we all struggle with. But fundamentally, sin is a vertical problem, not a horizontal problem. It's a vertical problem between us and God. This is what Jesus came to fix. Uh, Second, the way that Jesus fixes our sin is by his own sacrifice in death on the cross. Because you see, if we've got any familiarity at all, either with the Old Testament story or where John's gospel is going to take us by the end, we just can't hear the words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin without thinking back to that whole system of Old Testament sacrifice, where the Israelites would bring their sacrifices up to the temple in Jerusalem and and God would accept their sacrifices and forgive their sin. Or we think ahead in John's Gospel to the very end where Jesus lays down his life willingly in death on the cross to fulfil that whole Old Testament system. We sing regularly in one of our songs, no other cure for sin but that our Saviour died. And so Jesus takes away our sin by becoming our sacrifice for sin. Finally, what Jesus does by his death to deal with our sin is comprehensive in its scope. That is, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His death is for all people without distinction. It's for Jews and for non-Jews. It's for male and female. It's for children and teenagers and adults alike. There is nothing that we bring to our salvation except our sin that needs to be taken away. What Jesus brings is everything. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist wouldn't have even recognised Jesus at all, except for the fact that when Jesus was baptised, John saw the heaven open and, and the Spirit descend like a dove and remain on Jesus. And this had been the sign that God gave him to help recognise the Messiah. And so verse 34, this whole little section finishes with John testifying that Jesus is God's chosen one he is God's Messiah he is God's Christ his saviour king who would come and rescue and rule over God's people and so that's the wonderful testimony of John in the front half of our passage Uh, now we come to the discovery of the disciples and I'm I'm taking my lead here uh, really from the two times in the second half of the passage that uh, the disciples declare we have found 
the Messiah. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. So first of all, Andrew in verse 41 and then Philip in verse 45. Um, people of my generation can't hear that phrase probably without thinking of U2's Bono who still hasn't found what he's looking for. But Christians tell a different story. We have found what we were looking for. We have found the one that the Old Testament was pointing forward to the whole time. Jesus Christ. And so the discovery of the disciples. Uh, verse 35, it's another new day and John is there, two of his disciples. He sees Jesus passing by and once again he says, look, the Lamb of God. And uh, the two disciples who are with him, they immediately kind of leave John and begin to follow Jesus. And, and that's not an act of disloyalty to John, uh, given that John's uh, teaching all along has pointed to Jesus. It's actually the greatest loyalty to his teaching that they could show. So they leave John and they go and follow Jesus. And, and initially the conversation that's reported for us is nothing profound, but in verse 39 we're told that they spend that day with Jesus. And presumably it's here that Jesus really begins to teach them uh, about the kingdom of God and about himself as the great king of God's kingdom. Because the next thing we're told is that Andrew who was one of the two disciples, he leaves to go and find his brother Simon and he tells him in verse 41, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, that is the King, the Saviour King. That's who we've found. And uh, Simon comes before Jesus and we're told that Jesus renames him uh, with a name that means rock, uh, Peter, Cephas. And uh, this is a little bit surprising perhaps because uh, we know that uh, in the ancient world, a person's name so often represents their kind of character and their personality. And, and in the Gospels, um, Peter is typically anything but a rock. He is impulsive and he's unreliable and he's fearful and he's flaky. But such will be the powerful work of God's grace in this man that in time he will become a great pillar and a great uh, strong foundation upon which the gospel message would spread across the entire ancient world. So friends, if any of us ever feels like God couldn't possibly use us to strengthen a fellow believer or to share the gospel with someone who's not a Christian, uh, either because we don't have the courage or we don't have the words or we don't have the strength, we just need to remember how God was at work in Peter and what God made of this man who was so weak himself. Uh, but then verse 43, uh, it's the last in our series of days that we're considering this morning and uh, the action moves to Galilee and we meet a man called Philip and Jesus calls Philip to follow him, which he does. And uh, just like Andrew found Simon, so Philip now finds Nathaniel and says to him in verse 45, we've found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and, and also the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's not too impressed by this idea uh, in the same way perhaps that we've got used to our state premiers kind of sniping at each other in their daily press conferences. So too it seems that even fellow Galileans were all ready to have a crack at Nazareth. Um, this was such a nothing town as if anything good could come from there. But the proof is in the pudding and so Philip tells Nathaniel to come see for himself and as Nathaniel is approaching Jesus, Jesus makes a remark about him. Uh, he says in verse 47, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, according to Jesus, Nathaniel, he's a straight up and down kind of guy. Uh, he's not two-faced. He's not deceptive. Uh, he's, he's got integrity with Nathaniel. What you see is what you get. And he says what he means and he means what he says. And he, he has no deceit in him. And 
Clearly, Jesus' words are right on the money because in verse 48, Nathanael asks Jesus how he knows him, given that they've never met before. And Jesus replies, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And I will see this again and again in John's gospel, but Jesus constantly displays an intimate knowledge that goes right to the heart of a person and who they are. Uh, He has God's knowledge of people. And uh, that's true today, of course. He knows our needs. He knows our fears. He knows our sins. He knows our shame. He knows our longings. He knows our faith. Even if we ourselves do not yet know Jesus, Jesus knows us. Just as he knew Nathanael under the fig tree before Philip called him. And for Nathanael, this knowledge that Jesus has just revealed... Uh, is more than enough to cast away all his previous doubts because if Jesus can so accurately read his heart and understand his heart, even before they've met in the flesh, it can only mean one thing. And so verse 49, he declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Uh, The specific words are different, but it's exactly the same confession as the other ones that we've already heard in this chapter, from John the Baptist to the Jewish leaders and from Andrew to his brother Simon and from Philip to Nathaniel, It's just nothing less than the open declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Saviour King that God had promised and to whom the Old Testament Scriptures have been pointing all along in anticipation. And uh, Jesus is obviously impressed that Nathaniel has come to such a clear and certain faith on the basis of such a brief display of his glory. And he promises the disciples that they are going to see even greater things in the future, even heaven opening up and, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, which is Jesus' way of talking about himself so often. In other words, as we heard last week from the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, as we're going to hear again and again through the rest of this term. Jesus is the means by which the realities of heaven have come down to earth. He is the connection point between God and us. He is the one in whom the power and the love and the kindness and the grace of God are now available for everyone, for the world. And so if we would know God, then we must come to Jesus. And if we have come to Jesus, then we have certainly come to the Father as well. Well, there's our four days. We, we've got the testimony of John and we have uh, the discovery of the disciples. Let's finish with uh, just a, two implications I've got for us. Uh, first of all, the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus as Christ and Messiah. I think for me, this is the thing that has really struck home from this passage with a renewed sense of of wonder and clarity, Uh, especially from John's testimony about uh, the greatness of Jesus being so exceedingly great that he's not even uh, worthy to stoop down and untie the sandal of Jesus. Friends, if you're a Christian person, is this how highly you have been thinking of Jesus lately? That his greatness is, by comparison to ours, so exceedingly great, so all-surpassingly great, that it leaves us 
less worthy than even a slave. Uh, I have on my shelf at home a book that examines kind of the version of Christianity that is found in in so much of the modern West, even perhaps including Australia. It's called Christless Christianity. It's basically the idea that there is still plenty of Jesus, but it's a completely watered-down version of Jesus. A psychologically therapeutic Jesus, a comforting, non-threatening, middle-class Jesus. But not the greatness and the authority of a Christ and Messiah. Not the greatness and authority of a Christ and Messiah that leaves us, by comparison, less worthy than a slave. And yet that was the clear testimony of John the Baptist and in different words of Andrew to Simon and Philip to Nathaniel. We've found the Messiah. Friends, let's not be partakers of a a Christless Christianity. Let's allow John's gospel last Sunday, this morning, through the rest of this term to renew our thinking about Christ so that he is properly exalted. So this passage in the first place, it's here to give us evidence, to give us testimony that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is God's chosen one and the Son of God. With all of the enormous authority and weight that those words properly carry. That he might even take away the sin of the world by his own death. So that by believing in him, we might have life. When we understand his greatness, it's all surpassing greatness. And we remember that we are left less worthy than a slave. And then we just marvel at the kindness of God that Christ should call us to be so much more, to follow him as his disciples and to be his brothers and sisters, even his friends. But the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus as Christ and Messiah, I think that's the first implication of this passage. The second implication, the privilege and responsibility of testifying to Jesus. Uh, I'm sure this is probably the same for you, but virtually every day at the moment I expect to see a photo coming up on my feed on social media of someone who's just had their first or their second COVID vaccination. And uh, there they are, and they've got the little Band-Aid on their arm and the shirt sleeve pulled up and the nurse. And It just makes total sense, doesn't it? When there's something that you know you need and you've been waiting for it for a long time, of course when you finally get it, you want to tell people about it. And in Jesus we have something so much better than even a COVID vaccine, as wonderful as that is. Because in Jesus, we have a saviour who died as a cure for sin. And yet there is in this passage just a very clear sense, and, and the kids talk brought this out so well before, that as soon as people come to understand that Jesus is the saviour, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as soon as they come to understand that, the one they need and have been waiting for so long, 
then of course they, they rush to tell others about it. John the Baptist to the Jewish leaders and to his disciples, Andrew to his brother Simon, Philip to Nathaniel. There's no command, there's no instruction, just an urgent conviction that if they have found the Messiah, then both for the sake of him receiving the honour that he is due, as well for the sake of others receiving a salvation that none of us deserve, People need to be told about it. Even the whole world needs to be told about it. Oh, that in the weeks and months ahead, God might make us such followers of Christ who boldly speak to others these words of eternal life. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus. We're so thankful that you sent him in fulfilment of everything written about by Moses and by the prophets and all of the hopes and expectations and needs of your people were met in him. Thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist and of Andrew and of Philip. Thank you that they help us to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, your son, and that by believing that we might have life in his name. Thank you most of all that he is the lamb you have provided to take away the sin of the world. Amen.